We turn to the gospel that is found in Genesis chapter 4. We're going to begin to read in chapter 3. Verse 20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And to Adam also and to his wife, the Lord God made coats of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived in bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. In process of time it came to pass that Cain brought the fruit of the ground for an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstling of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, that is like a panther ready to pounce. Unto thee shall be his desire, his focus will be on thee, and thou shalt rule over him. Actually, having to do with rule over thee. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that findeth me shall slay me. The Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And now we go to verse 25, 25, which will also serve as our text. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son. He called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord, that is, evidently to have formal worship. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam, man. In the day when they were created, Adam lived in hundred and thirty years, and begat a son in his own likeness after his image, and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were 800 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days of, that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And Seth lived in 105 years, and begat Enos. And Seth lived after he begat Enos 807 years, and begat sons and daughters. All the days of Seth were 900 years, 912 years. And he died. Thus far the reading of the passage. Our text is at 25th, 25th verse of chapter 4. 
And Adam knew Eve, his wife, again. And she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. You have here, tucked away in Genesis 4, a little jewel of a text. It is a text that is suffuse with love, the display and the demonstration of the love of a man for a woman, but especially the love of Jehovah God for those whom he was pleased yet to call and consider to be his own children. This is a text that's full of gospel, the revelation of God himself and the heart of God as Jehovah God, faithful to those whom he so loved from the very beginning. A case could be made that when it comes to gospel revelation in the Old Testament, that is the revelation of the heart of God as a father unto his people, whom he would call and preserve as his own and what he would do for them to accomplish it. A case could be made, this is of the third greatest significance. With little doubt, the text of greatest gospel significance in the Old Testament as the revelation of Jehovah God as the Savior God would be Genesis 3. 15, that which we call the mother promise, which follows so hard on the heels of the rebellion of Adam and Eve when they spit in the face of God. When Mother Eve said, if it comes to a choice between a piece of fruit hanging from a tree that has been denied me and the friendship of Jehovah God, I select a piece of fruit that will give me temporary satisfaction. Forget about friendship of Jehovah God. That's how she weighed them in the balance. That insult to Jehovah God and his friendship, not even worth a piece of fruit that will satisfy me at the moment. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? On the heels of that, Jehovah God comes to man and woman and speaks to Satan before in their presence and says to Satan, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. And in the hearing of the woman says, she is going to bring forth a seed that's going to crush your seed and your head, and have victory over you, Satan. I will see that she produces such a one. And of course, in that the revelation of himself and what he so willed to do for those whom he so loved. And the whole of sacred history, of course, follows from that promise and that revelation of God himself. Now as to the text of second gospel significance in the Old Testament. If this were a catechism class, I would now ask one of you to give to me what you would consider to be the text of second greatest gospel significance in the Old Testament. And I would wait for a while, and if no one put their hands up, finally call upon someone and say, what do you think? 
But this isn't catechism, and I am stated supply, so it's expected that I would give the answer to my own question, and I will. And I think you will not dispute that the text of second greatest significance would be Isaiah 7:14. Behold, I show you a mystery. No, that's not exactly the word, but it does begin with the words, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. I, I will come into the womb of a woman. I will give my son to the womb of a woman, and I will take the part that you, your part, and accomplish for you what you could not possibly accomplish for yourself. And I will do that at whatever cost to myself, you who have turned your back on me. I will return that good for your evil. What a revelation. What a God. What a grace. What a mercy. What a wonder. God so loved. And whom did he so love? And at what cost to himself? And now I said a case can be made for Genesis 3.25 being the text of third gospel significance. Because, of course, it's the birth of Seth that is in itself a fulfillment of the mother promise of continuing the seed of the woman so that there would be from woman a genealogy and a spiritual seed that which in every generation would be spiritual, leading to what you find in Luke and the gospel as recorded by Luke. And I don't have in mind simply chapter 2, with which we are so familiar, and the birth of Mary's firstborn, but Luke chapter 3, the second half of which is a genealogy that runs from Joseph supposedly, because it's really Mary, and runs back to her ancestry, taking it through Zerubbabel, and to Nathan, the son of David, not Solomon. That's the royal line, the spiritual line, Nathan, which means gift. Nathan, who came from Abigail, and David, back through Caleb, Boaz and Caleb, Judah, and finally to Seth, to Adam, whom the genealogy says was a son of God. It's this Seth that is the link in that chain, without whom there would be, of course, no genealogy, no gospel as recorded by Luke in chapters 2 and chapter 3. This text, beloved, sets forth that faithfulness of, of God to replace Abel, to replace this Abel with another spiritual seed who was to be the true seed of the woman carrying that seed that would go all the way to the Messiah, to the Christ our Lord and, and Savior. So this text, God so loved that he gave to Eve Seth. That's the text. Notice what it says. As Eve herself says, For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed. God hath appointed to me this seed. God so loved that he gave to her another seed. And in so doing, of course, revealed himself as the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. In the birth of this Seth, a very ordinary birth of a seemingly very ordinary child, but of extraordinary significance, beloved, as to his place in history not only, but as to what he revealed concerning Jehovah God, as our Savior God. And with that, we turn to the text under the theme, Seth, God's gift to Mother Eve.
understanding that Mother Eve, of course, represents the church. The ordinary birth of a child of extraordinary significance as the fruit and proof of love, both by God and of a man, and harbinger of the great seed. And of course, you know who that is. From a merely human point of view, there is nothing remarkable about our text. A man knows his wife in a sexual way, and she conceives, and nine months later she bears a child who happens to be a son, and to this son they give a name. How many billions of times in the history of the human race hasn't that occurred? So very, very commonplace and ordinary from every outward point of view. And yet the loved, however commonplace and ordinary the birth of this Seth may appear to be, the birth of this Seth is anything but ordinary and commonplace. The birth of this Seth is extraordinary, of extraordinary significance, and really a revelation of an extraordinary and I'm going to call him God in his faithfulness and his love. And that from three points of view. Beloved, extraordinary in that what you have here is the birth of a human child. I don't care how many billions of times that has occurred. The birth of a human being is extraordinary. It is the revelation of the splendor of the mind of the Creator. One knows another in love, and two strands of DNA wrap themselves about one another in the dance of life, and after a few days' time, they reach what's called total potency. I believe the term is, and suddenly some of the cells decide to become bones. And limbs emerge from this little tissue. And this limb this way, and that limb that way, and these limbs this way, and on the top of a spine, a head and a skull, which will have eye sockets and a mouth where a tongue can fit. And about that time, other cells decide it's time to form themselves as arteries and veins, and others decide to diversify into nerves to reach to every part of the, of the limbs that are emerging, and some diversify into skin, and others into blood cells themselves, and others into organs, and not only in organs, but arranged in just a certain way to be inter intertwined and, and related one to another and just to produce just the right amount of chemicals, not too much and not too little, so that there can be a normalcy and balance and at the same time a head is, is being formed with the marvel of the eyeball to receive light that will go to this mind, this gray tissue that will understand things as it reads the light of the world coming through little apertures in these little orbs in our head and the optic nerve sending messages to the brain that begins to interpret what it's seeing and then thinking and then self-knowledge and self-awareness all from two little strains of DNA that just happen to wrap themselves about each other and perform the dance of life. So extraordinary, beloved, that even the atheist biologist and scientist are astonished by it. I have read a book called A Brief History of well, Just About Everything, written by a man who 
makes plain in the book he is a self-professed atheist. There is no God. But he does a study of the scientific development of human man, of human beings from the time of the understanding of fire and the creation of making of the wheel and then through all the scientific processes getting finally to Einstein and light and relativity but having a section dealing with biology as well and human biology briefly and the forming of a human being, a little child coming from these strands of DNA with all the chromosomes lining up just, just so. And basically in the last paragraph of his description of all of this, this is my interpretation as you read between the lines, he's forced to say, if I were not resolved to remain an unbeliever, I would be almost persuaded that the only way this could have occurred is that there is a creator. But I want to remain an unbeliever, so I won't acknowledge that. It all just happened by chance. My foot, the foolishness of unbelief, and the testimony of God concerning the forming of a human being to testify against the foolishness of man, the splendor, beloved, the splendor of the mind of the Creator. Hold in your arms the firstborn. And every one of us is asked, What hath God wrought? Not first of all, in the birth of this Seth. Let's not forget that. But the second truth of extraordinary significance is that this one was born to house the Holy Spirit. This was spiritual seed. In this little one dwelt God himself from a certain point of view. He was not Emmanuel, but when you receive seed that is spiritual and the heart is renewed they are the houses of the holy spirit do they not do we not do not our children isn't that a remarkable and almost incredible thing extraordinary and from these two who had turned their backs on god and said who needs god he hasn't even given us enough. He has given us all, but not enough. He withheld one thing from us, and we want that too. In their rebellion, in their base, ungratitude, their base ungratitude. And yet to them, God gives them this son and gives to this son spiritual life and dwells in him by his good and holy spirit. Extraordinary, beloved as are our children too, when you think about it, as the spiritual seed, that they should come from the likes of us. What an extraordinary grace that it should be so. And so this Seth, beloved, this Seth, reformed, if you will, remade in the image of the Creator and of the saving God. And then... This third fact of extraordinary significance when you consider that he was born at a critical, critical time in the history of world, of sacred history as we refer to it. Because for the second time it appears that everything with respect to our everlasting inheritance has been forfeited and lost. The first time, of course, due to the choice of Adam and Eve when they selected a piece of fruit over the friendship of God and turned their backs on God and said he may have given us almost everything, but he withheld one thing from us and we want that too, whatever it cost us. We will choose with Satan and even call God a deceiver that he hasn't told us the complete truth. They forfeited it all, and we read it. And the fruit of that sin, of that rebellion against God is he drove them from the garden, and he puts the cherubim by the tree of life so that it cannot eat the fruit 
and prevent aging day by day. So that's the first time. But there came the mother promise, as we recall, and God spoke of bringing forth spiritual life yet and, and victory in spite of all their rebellion and all of their, of their sin. Now, now, the second time, Cain has, rose, has, a, has risen up in an envy and in a bitterness, and he has slain his brother Abel, and he has brought about death. And of course, you have another crisis, because Cain has shown himself now to be reprobate and carnal seed, and the one who was the spiritual seed, Abel, is dead. And we read nothing at this point of a third son. It's evident they must have had daughters, and that Cain and Abel marry sisters, and they both bring forth children, and cousins marry each other, and there may have been a number of generations living already at this time, because Cain says, after God has spoken to him and drives him forth, puts the mark on him, that there will be a human race that will hold his life in little regard, and he fears some kind of a retaliation, and God sends him away and spares his life. There was a human race, but you read nothing at that time of a third son. Both of the sons that they had born, Cain and Abel, are out of the picture as far as being the spiritual seed and the continuation of the line of the seed of the woman. And into that circumstance, Seth is born. What you have, of course, in this display of violence and of enmity, the malice of Cain over against Abel, is a foreshadowing, maybe even a representation of the whole of Old Testament history, don't you? That is, comes the dragon, comes Satan, to prevent the birth and the coming of the seed of the woman, who of course would be the one who would crush his head and defeat him to prevent the coming of this seed at all cost. And this, of course, begins with Cain slaying Abel. And it seems at this point as though the dragon has had the victory in spite of the promise of God that the seed of the woman would have the victory. There is no seed of the woman at this point, is there? Continue the line into the mediator. But a foreshadowing of the whole of Old Testament history. This isn't the only time the dragon comes forth and seems almost to be at the point of victory. You go to Egypt and a pharaoh arises who knows not, not Joseph. And now let's slay all of the little baby boys of the Israelites so that in the end only women of Israel are left who will be given to the Egyptian men. And of course they will simply be absorbed into the nation. Israel will be no more. There can be no more spiritual seed. The heirs are all dead, all the little baby boys and men and, men and, men and young men. And then you have another instance a little ways down, down the line. God has delivered, of course, he delivers Israel from Egypt by the way of the Red Sea and destroys Pharaoh and his hosts in the, in the same instance. But you have one like Athaliah arising, who is, of course, of Jezebel, Ahab and Jezebel, married to the son of Jehoshaphat. And her husband, is, her husband dies, and then her son rules in, her, in, 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 the, in the place of his father. And it's Jehu who comes along and slays Joram of Ahab and Jezebel, but also slays the son of Athaliah, and Athaliah, the grandmother, turns against her own grandsons and seeks to destroy all the seed royal that she may have the power all to her herself. With a grandmother like that, you don't need grandmothers, do you? But the wife of Jehoiada is there and steals away little Joash, and the seed royal is spared. So close comes the dragon to destroying the royal part of the line of the seed of the woman. And then you have Babylon, and yet God spares the line of David and the seed of the woman in Babylon, both the spiritual and the royal. And then you come to Luke chapter 2, and a decree goes out from Caesar Augustus, the world should be taxed. And a little one is born to Mary, Mother Mary, and wise men come in from the east, and they informed Herod 
of Esau the Edomite of the birth of the promised Messiah. And I too will worship him. Tell me when you find him where he is at. And they are warned by God in a dream, and they do not return to Herod. And Herod sends forth his soldiers to slay all the, all the little baby boys of Bethlehem, two years and younger. And the jaws of the dragon snap shut. But God has warned Joseph, and Joseph and Mary and the little one have escaped into Egypt, so that out of Egypt may I call my son. So close, and yet God preserving the line and the seed of the woman himself. And here too, beloved, it begins, you see, with this bringing forth of Seth from Adam and Eve to replace Abel, because that's what Seth remains, re, uh, that's what Seth means, that word replacement or compensation, if you will. As Eve herself says, he hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, one who replaces who comes instead of, almost the word substitute comes to mind, you see. God continues his work. He works in such a way that Adam knows his wife, and God blesses the womb of Eve so that this little one is brought forth. And from Seth will come the generation of the spiritual, and that generation of the spiritual, that line will reach all the way to Luke 3, as we have said, and Luke 2, and the, and the birth of Mary's firstborn, who of course will be the seed of the woman and the son of man, and will be the one who will rise up in victory to overcome Satan and the evil one. This, beloved, is the dragon slayer. But it begins with Seth. Now understand that Seth, of course, is not only a typical of Christ himself and the mediator pointing on to me, but even of our own children. Ordinary, you know, from every human point of view. Not so extraordinary, just ordinary children that we bring forth. So the world counts them, even if they have some gifts and abilities. They're not going to be numbered with the great of the world and movers and the shakers and so on, just ordinary citizens of the land. That's how the world may look at them, beloved, but not Satan. Don't think Satan looks at the seed of the woman of the spiritual seed in that way. He knows that the seed of the woman of the spiritual seed are the ones who withstand him. That is from the spiritual seed that comes the church. And the, to the church is given the gospel. And the gospel goes forth into all the world. That's not just missionaries who bring forth the gospel. It's the business of the church as the missionaries come from the church. And the church supports those missionaries. And they go forth with the gospel. And Christ uses that word from victory unto victory. The running of the white horse. And he casts down the citadels of Satan from heart after heart after heart and lays claim to his own throughout the nations. That's the fruit, you see, the fruit of love. Love that is wedded to faith. Because love that's wedded to faith brings forth life. And it's life in the end that the, that the evil one cannot quench because in that life there is eternal life. And so, beloved, is true of our children, of the seed of the covenant that God uses in the end for the gathering of his church, the coming of his kingdom, and the defeat of Satan, and the exposing of his evil and all of his deceit. And he hates the little brats that we bring forth, the same ones that God so loves. Of extraordinary significance, beloved, in the battle between light and darkness and truth and error and kingdom of righteousness versus kingdom of evil. In the end, as we have said, this is a revelation of love, of the gospel, the heart of which is love. It illuminates, as we have said, God's love for his own, that he so loved, that he gave and sent forth. The text 
must be read, you understand, in its context. And the context, of course, has to do with the violence of Cain against Abel. And it's against that background that the light of love and of the gospel is illuminated. In fact, that really is embedded in our text itself when Eve says, for God's says she hath appointed to me another seed instead of Abel whom Cain slew. Must understand the birth of Seth and the significance of the birth of Seth over against this violence of Cain as the seed of the serpent against Abel, who of course is spiritual seed. And now the spiritual seed is dead. A child has been slain, and a mother holds the corpse of a child in her arms. You talk about grief, beloved, grief of almost a bottomless sort. Then you speak and talk about the loss of a child, be that child a daughter or a son, be that child two days old, be that child two years old, be that child 12, 22, or 42, I don't care. The death of a child for a mother is the death of almost, is the grief of almost a bottomless sort. Any number of times I have walked into the room of, let us say, a widow, and she may be 80, 90 years of age, and her life has been compressed into just one simple room with a, with a bed and so on, that on her mantle will be pictures of her beloved family, of her children and her children's children. And any number of times I've said, I've looked at the pictures and said, oh, you had five children, I say. Oh, no, Reverend, I had six children. And at the age of two, there was this disease, and the Lord took him or her home. Or 12, there was an accident and she was taken to glory. And last week or the month before on this day would have been her so-and-so birthday. And in three months' time, that's when she died. That may have been 50, 60, 70 years ago. And that mother has not forgotten. Eve has that grief as she looks at the body of Abel, her son. Add to that, beloved, that he has been slain by his brother, and she has lost two sons in one swoop, if you will. And now add to that this knowledge. There is death in the world, and this this violence, this murder, because of my choice, And my sin, I brought this upon creation. I brought this upon myself and my loved ones by my sin. And God is calling it to mind. Has God forgotten to be kind? I turned my back on him, and now he has turned his back on me. And this is the word of judgment and of wrath, and it's all coming home what I have done in the fruit of my doing and of my choice. I'm glad, beloved, I was not her pastor. I don't know exactly what words I would have brought to her. And you may have said, well, you would have brought to her at that time the mother promise and what God had said. And she would have responded, oh yeah, words, wonderful words, Reverend, re- wonderful words. But that's all they were, that's all they are as words. The substance is a corpse. That's the substance what I'm left with. As for the promise, it's in tatters and it's shredded beyond repair. I have nothing to show for it but a body to be placed in the grave in another son who is carnal seed. It's in that circumstances, beloved, that she holds another child, a little one, whom they call Seth. And she looks upon that child. And now, beloved, it's not simply words. 
this is substance. And she looks at that child and she says, God hath appointed me a son. God hath appointed me an heir. God has not turned his back on me and us after all. God has remembered his word. And he turns his face towards us. And now, now again we have hope. One is reminded, you know, of the widow of Zarephath. Elijah visits the home. The widow of Zarephath survives with her little boy, seven years old, until what? She wakes up in the morning and her little one, seven years old, is dead. And she holds that little boy before the face of Elijah and says, Have you come to call my sins to remembrance? Is that why you have come? That I was a pagan, I was an unbeliever, and this is the consequences of it? And Elijah is stunned. He doesn't know what to say. God had not foretold him that this would happen. And he takes the little one into the loft, doesn't he? And he prays to God and lays upon the body of the little boy, and he revives the resurrection from the dead, and he carries the little one down the loft and puts that little one in the arms of the mother. And now she sings another song, not a song of despair and of grief, but of hope and of confidence in Elijah's God, who is her God, who is Jehovah God. And so beloved Eve, as she holds Seth, Reminds me of another gospel passage, which you may say is the third of greatest significance, Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. And that chapter continues, you know, until you come to what I am convinced is the climax of the chapter. And it's again, it is a behold. And it's in verse 11. And it speaks of the coming of the Messiah as a shepherd. And he shall lead his flock like a shepherd, And what? And carry the lambs in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. The heart of that great gospel passage has a view to the mothers of Israel and the comfort that he will give to the mothers of Israel as the Messiah carries their lambs and they look to him and know that this shepherd loves their lambs as surely as he loves them. And if you don't begin to hear the coming of the Hallelujah Chorus, beloved, when you read that, you're tone deaf. I'm reminded of another passage in the Gospel of the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Christ. Her little girl is sick unto death and dying. And And that Syrophoenician woman, of course, represents the mothers of the Gentiles, doesn't she? And the nation of the Gentiles. And then she says these words that always strike me as being so powerful. She says, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. Her little one is dying. And she says, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. So closely does this mother identify herself with that little one. And Christ hears that word. And he turns to the Jews and says, I have not found such great faith, no, not in all of Israel. Be it unto thee as thou doth desire. And that little one is not only healed, of course, the little one is saved. And to the joy of that mother who is of Syrophoenician, related in some ways to the one from Zarephath. So, beloved, this great gospel message as the revelation of the love of God revealed in the one who is the seed of the woman but at the same time is Emmanuel, God with us. What is man that thou art mindful of him and visited him to save us with such a grace. But not only is this a revelation of the love of God for his own this is also beloved illumination of the love of a believing man for his wife. Adam, we read, knew Eve. And that, of course, has to do with the sexual relationship. But let's understand, when it says that Adam knew his wife again, this isn't simply 
reference to a sexual relationship. This is the knowledge of a love. He stands by his wife Eve, you know, when they stand before the body of this Abel, and they look at the body of this Abel, and Eve says, I have brought this into the world. This is due to my sin and my choice and my guilt. What have I done? What have I done? What have I done? And Adam doesn't turn to her and say, you're right, woman. This is what you have done. This is what you brought forth into the world. You're the one who tempted me, and that's why I took it. If I didn't have you, it would never have happened. He doesn't say that, does he? He turns to his wife in her need and says, no, the guilt is not yours alone. I also partook. I share the blame. I share the guilt. And my love, I forgive you from the bottom of my heart. And now let's cast ourselves together on the mercy of God. And he knows her in love, embraces her according to her need, don't you see? And in that way even ministers to her. Beloved, how important in marriage is not that kind of love. A willingness to forgive one another and to recognize it's not just, I'm living with a sinner. I am a sinner living with a sinner. And even if the other sinned first, I also responded in a way that was not proper. Lord, have mercy on both of us and let us pray to him together and in him be reconciled. That kind of a love that is willing to forgive as it sought and love may it be found as it sought. And the reconciler holds us together, doesn't he, in his love. But that's Adam, you see, for Eve, his wife. And out of that love of those two believers comes forth this life. And it's a life in the end that reaches all the way unto Mary's firstborn, Christ Jesus himself. That great seed of the woman. That last point, as I said, is that this is the harbinger, the harbinger of the seed to come. That final replacement and that final substitute, if you will. And so necessary, because for all the significance of Seth, and from every point, from a certain point of view, being extraordinary in his birth and in his significance, he couldn't accomplish what needed to be accomplished, could he? He could be used in the continuation of the spiritual line, but he himself had no power. Beloved, you know, I'm reminded at this point of Revelation chapter 12, where you read, there appeared another wonder in heaven. We read part of it this morning. This woman, and she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. That's Christ Jesus in his ascension, isn't it? The seed of the woman, the son of man, who has the rod of iron to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Seth did not hold that rod. He could not hold that rod. He could bring, he could be used by God to reach unto that one. But he couldn't hold the rod of iron. He couldn't even prevent his own death. That's why we finished where we did in the reading of the passage. And he died. He couldn't pay for the sins that needed to be paid for. He couldn't overcome the evil one and the dragon. There had to come one forth who had the power of the dragon slayer. And the only one who would have that power was the one who would be the son of man. Who would have the power of God Almighty. And that's the one that Mary brings forth, does she not? Go to Luke chapter 2. So ordinary. So commonplace, just another little Jewish boy. But beloved, as they look upon him, this is not simply one who has the Holy Spirit. This is God himself in the flesh. This is the dragon's bane. This will be the one who will be the dragon slayer, who will give himself to death whose blood will speak better things than that of Abel. All Abel's blood could speak of is the call for revengeance and remembrance. But the blood of this one will pay for the sins, will undo what the woman has brought upon 
the world and give to the woman and her seed the right to the inheritance again. And he arises with healing in his wings and he ascends to heaven to hold the rod of iron. And he goes forth from victory unto victory, beloved. A harbinger, like a crocus, you know, in the time of spring breaking through the ground is Seth, foretelling of the greater seed to come. That's our God, and that's our Christ. I said that the birth of Seth was extraordinary. But beloved, here's the most extraordinary truth of all. That Jehovah God has chosen to be our God and to give himself for our sakes to undo what we, through our mother, brought to pass upon the world and to turn death into life and to grant that life not unto us but to children and children's children. What a God of wonder. What a God of might. The splendor of his mercy and his grace surpasses knowledge. Don't you agree? Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for the wonder of thy love in which thou didst bring forth even from the womb of a woman, thy faithfulness to thy word and thy mercies upon us and ours. May we live in gratitude and not be ashamed, be dignified with thee, the seed woman as well, and the son of man, and seek refuge and shelter in his name, in Jesus' name, amen.